2: Pitt is to Addington what London is to Paddington, thus saith George Canning in the Oracle.
3: So as usual I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely looking Londoners who happen to be out there
2: It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell I think screaming does help as well Ooh, yes, the Horniman walrus They dug out bodies in 1887,
3: 1873 What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? We've got Sarah Palin coming, how do you feel about that?
2: A little bit <laughs> pathetic <laughs>
3: So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house.
1: One sees a
4: story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're
3: banning people from bringing food to home. Yeah,
4: they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A
1: word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush.
3: Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon?
4: Listen, you're all idiots. You know, not want to culture or anything <laughs>
3: No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff.
1: You engage with other people, you link across to other people.
0: It's just huge. It's gigantic.
3: <laughs> How many times have you done this, far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible.
2: London life is a really rich experience and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children.
3: What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, December the 14th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we are at Senate House in Bloomsbury today. We're at the Museum of Writing here at the University of London site. With me, a large panel. Mark Duncan is the Artistic Director of Corner Theatre Company. He's also a mime artist and very much involved in community theatre around town. Gareth Edwards, who, who also trades as John Bull, and we'll be alternating between those names. He's the personification of Englishness, I tell you, uh, and he's a transport journalist, and he's the editor of London Reconnections, which covers transport topics in and around London. Tom Miles is project coordinator for the Museum of Writing. His work is digitising and cataloguing the first block of items, which is set to go live in early 2013. He's got a background in digitisation of a whole range of heritage Projects. And last but not least, Alan Cole is the original collector of the uh, collection here at the Museum of Writing. He started in, well, this this blows my mind, in 1955 as a private collector. And uh, it's, it's much more recently that the collection's been taken on by the museum here. Hello, you all. Hello. Hello. Let's come to you first of all, Alan. And you, you're, uh, you've got an array of
2: fountain pens in front of you here. Could, could you tell us what started you first of all collecting? In 1954. When I was at school, a teacher said to me, you'll never get anywhere in life unless people can read your writing. So I went to the British Museum, British Library, looked at all these letters of uh, famous writers, actors, artists, and uh, decided that their writing was no more legible than mine. Teachers knew absolutely nothing, Um, but that got me interested. The spark was ignited. And it manifested itself how? Uh, Well, finished up with over 100,000 items, dating from about 6,000 B.C. to the present date, for examples of writing, writing equipment, materials. Uh, My head nearly fell off. Uh, 6,000 B.C.? Yes, there's something uh, called embryo writing that was written on, there's really shapes and symbols on um, stones from from southwestern France.
3: We have been visiting a number of collections in recent weeks, including the Welcome Collection, the Horniman Collection, and these are very much centred around individual figures who've started to gather things together. And then eventually, well, we were saying at the Horniman last week that uh, the Horniman really exists as a museum because Mrs Horniman got fed up with all the stuff in the front room. What was the uh, spur for you to move the uh, uh, the collection over to the museum here?
2: Um the same thing exactly my wife couldn't couldn't open the cupboard without without letters without being stabbed by a pen nib or something and so um she said you've always promised to get rid of this isn't it about time you did and so 2010 I donated the collection to the university Tom Miles your responsibility is about digitization what does that mean in
3: in practical terms and we'll come come to some of the physical artifacts in just a moment um but what, what about the digital side of things
0: Well, the digital process really is just photographing the objects and getting as good a view as you possibly can uh, of the object. Um, There are various ways of doing this. I mean, you could you could just video it on a turntable. But I mean, we're, we're just sort of taking several shots of various various objects such as. Um, inkwells and um, uh, roman wax tablets and styluses Uh, and then also there will just be for for letters of um, celebrities there there will just be a, a scanning of the letters and putting information in about about who where what when and how
3: And now that celebrity angle surprises me, actually. I sort of understand uh, the collection of things that have got, uh, that represent a moment, I suppose, in the development of writing or something like that, some sort of leap forward, perhaps. What about the the celebrity uh, stuff?
0: We've got a very big collection of Victorian letter writers. And what I find interesting about them is is they're very, it's, it's not necessarily documentally important. It's it's really can you come over for dinner um, and we can send a cab round or, you know, we would send a send a horse round to pick you up. And they're, they're really they're really the you get an idea of the sort of short communication. That we would normally say in a text or an email or a phone call. Oh, uh, I see. I thought you were talking
3: about like uh, Jude Law or something like that. I see. We're, we're going back in time a little bit here.
0: We are going back a, a little bit in time. Yes, I mean, we, we, yes, maybe maybe uh, yeah, this is a request for for people to to, to send their send their writing in. But um, uh, no, I mean that's that's a large part of the the collection is is in the the nineteenth nineteenth
3: century. We'll be giving details on where people can take a look at this uh, sort of stuff later on. Mark Duncan, we've got an array of fountain pens. Where would you like to
1: start? Where would you like, Alan, to lead us first? The feather is definitely the one that catches my attention, just because it takes me back further in time than any of the other artefacts, perhaps even... To Shakespeare's time. Shakespeare, I can't see any
3: connection with your line of work there.
2: <laughs> All it is is that it's a quill. It's been cut um, so it can, you dip it in the ink and it writes. The quill it goes back to at least the third century. Um, some people think the Romans invented it and it continued well into the 19th. I've never looked
3: properly at a, a cut quill. That is exactly the same shape as the nib of a fountain pen, isn't it? With the, um, how does it is it? With it possible to say, <laughs> this is a challenge on radio, is it possible to say how that works in a very fundamental way because they've all got the same sort of shape except for this uh, black object which we'll come yeah. to in just a second.
2: Simply that um, it, when you dip the quill into the ink, it's held in the, in the channel. It, there's a reservoir of ink that's held in the quill and when you write it simply uh, flows down onto the paper. It, it looks just, as just exactly the same as um, a pen nib or a fountain pen. It looks as though gravity should empty it all out instantly, yeah. though, doesn't it? But it? No, no, it doesn't. It, because um, it's there's a slightly sticky surface to it, it does adhere to The ink does, and it just runs down slowly. This uh, little
3: fellow here, um, it's about three, four inches, and it looks like a small black spear that's slightly bent.
2: Basically, it is, I suppose. This one's got a bent handle. Yes, yeah, it should have a straight handle. It's medieval. It's made of bronze. There are four flanges, which, when you dip it into the ink, it does hold the ink in the flanges. Um, The simple reason people are looking, instead of the quill, which you have to recut and dip in the ink every so often, something like that, they're looking for a reservoir, for a pen with a reservoir. And this is one of the first examples. It didn't catch on, because if you write, it either doesn't write at all, or it floods.
3: Yes, it's, it's not difficult to imagine uh, being a right mess, to be honest. Yes. All of those lovely frontispieces—I yes. can't see coming from that pen. Yeah, no,
2: absolutely. That's why it didn't—it didn't catch on, and uh, there aren't many of them around because people just got rid of them. Gareth Edwards, any of these catch your attention?
4: Oh, I'm—I'm I'm, I'm thinking the brass object. It looks—it looks quite threatening, actually. So I quite like—I quite like the look of that one. Something bulletesque about it, isn't
2: yes. it? Yes, it is. It's um, dates from 1749. It's called a bion. Found in pen, it was um, designed by Nicholas Bion in the 17th century. It's based on air pressure. It's simply a brass tube with a top that um, you unscrews. You put the ink in the in the handle if you wish, mm-hmm. and there's a brass plummet that goes in, which controls the flow of ink. So you've got a kind of a valve. It's it sort of a valve, and the air pressure pushes it down. Through the valve and then out through the nib, just like a modern fountain pen. And does that represent a major leap forward in terms of pen technology? Absolutely, it's the first fountain pen. In fact, Beyond called it <laughs> La Plume Sans Fin, which is the endless pen, hmm. and uh, which is as, as near as damn it to the present fountain pen as you can get. And what's, what's really
0: fascinating for me about that um, uh, Beyond pen. Is the nib is a quill, and not a um, uh, not metal, so it's a sort of um, it, it's a halfway house. Uh, so it's it's controlling the ink uh, on a, for a quill pen rather than yes. rather than a metal one. Oh, I didn't notice.
3: Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it?
0: Um, we'll come to more
3: pens in a minute. Mo- I'm just yeah. conscious, that the, um, I'm conscious that we need to get our other subject up and running for the day. We are, of course, in the festive season, and uh, we've got a, a story about crackers coming up. So, um, Mark Duncan, could we have your first Christmas cracker joke of the day, please? What did the lion say when he
1: saw two hunters in a jeep? Ah, meals on wheels. That's terrible. Shall I do another one? <laughs> How do you keep cool at a football match? You stand next to a fan.
3: Just have a moment to let the enormity of that one sink in.
4: Someone clear the tumbleweed out of yeah. the room that's yeah. just rolled
3: in. We'll be enjoying more of those Christmas cracker jokes as we go through. Should we, ha- should we have the Christmas cracker story now? Because there's a definite London yeah. connection here. I didn't realise this at all, that the Christmas cracker was invented
1: in London. It was indeed. It was in 1847, and Thomas J. Smith of Goswell Road was struggling to sell his bonbon sweets. So he decided to wrap it um, a bit like a fortune cookie. Um, I don't know if that's where the jokes, <clears throat> if you can call them that, came from. Um, or the puns, rather. And he decided to put a little banger in it and therefore got bigger. Whether it was his idea to put those little... They didn't have plastic then. I was going to say those little plastic artefacts in. But maybe the paper hats that we all put on, just to seal the silliness and drunkenness often of Christmas, cross our hands over and pull the crackers and tell those terrible jokes. That's a lot of effort to sell a suite, really, isn't it? Well, it's paid off. Um, so it says, and his, and his... Tom Smith crackers are still trading, it seems. Well today you can find a memorial fountain to the family, which it says is su- sadly lacking biography and rather dirty, so obviously needs a clean and a bit more information. but it's in the square's southeast corner, so that's the square of I don't know which square that is, doesn't say.
4: I think it's Finsbury Square, but I can't remember. I know, I know we did win a, pit, win a win a pub quiz with that question a little while back on, a, on kind of a uh, one of the, the Londonist pub quizzes. So it's it's obviously come up before. I'm pitying the first person
3: who opened one of these bonbons, having never heard of a cracker before, and they open it and it explodes in their hand. That must have been quite a terrifying experience. <laughs> Exploding sweetie. Yes, let's talk about pantomime. What's uh, what's happening in pant? Uh, does this mean you're doing a pantomime, Mark?
1: I'm not doing a pantomime as many actors do this time of year, Um, but Cornucopia is leading a pantomime inspired project. Um, In Shadwell and Tower Hamlets where we often have been doing such projects over the last two years You're you're down there all the time these days What's what's going on there that you've been in adventure playgrounds down (laughs) there performing Shakespeare? Yeah, the last time I was on the show was just before we did Macbeth at Glamis Adventure Playground
3: Have you not done Romeo and Juliet down there as well?
1: We did do that this summer But we've also done a couple of other projects We did an Olympic project in which the young people uh, We worked in a school but we worked outside as much as possible we led to a performance in victoria park in which we showed the three london olympics over the different years Mm so in the 20th century and 21st century and we also did a trip down the canal and to city farms just to encourage people to appreciate especially young people to appreciate the green spaces that are there around London and also to encourage them to perform in outdoor spaces and with those projects in Glamis it's great to see the young people the development over a couple of years Um, I mean they're teenagers and their confidence self-expression has grown enormously and we've also heard from their teachers that their academic studies has improved enormously contrary to some of the parents worry that it would take them away from their academic studies but now of course it's winter and we don't have a base ourselves, it's something we're looking for, so we're working back at Glamis, but rather than in the playground, because it's freezing, we're in the Glamis residence hall just across the way, which is part of the Glamis housing estate, it's quite an urban neighbourhood, hence the importance of the playground, and basically at the end of the week, the young people will give a kind of cabaret pantomime performance based on robin in the hood <laughs> but wait, what's the what's the date of that uh that's gonna well we're starting in between christmas and new year's and then we've got three days second third and fourth in 2013 in which we will also take them to see the pantomime robin hood down in greenwich just across the Thames. Gareth Edwards, you're looking at the transport story of the week, which
3: is all about the completion of the Overground Circle.
4: Yeah, we finally have the the completion of the London Overground, which is the kind of the orange bit that's going right around the edge of London these days it's it's quite interesting it's it's now all the way through to clapham junction if you stand on a platform at Highbury and islington you can now go both ways to get to clapham junction um which is which, which uh, is what we've all been looking for yes which which is uh, which is yeah which is the, the best thing since sliced bread it's, it's a marked change i think anyone who's kind of lived in london their, their whole life uh, and certainly on the kind of the outskirts uh, probably has horrific memories of kind of those train services before they got taken over and, and turned orange and they were pretty awful okay, could you give us a flavour of what they used to be like uh well the, this was the the joyous days of a of, of a of a company called silverlink who used to run the trains back then and you, you you were kind of lucky if it actually turned up at all let alone whether it turned up on time uh, I've, I've always said that that anyone who, who used to commute via to silverlink services probably deserves some kind of medal yes I, I
3: remember them the first time i got on a silverlink i remember it being like the scenes in 1980s thrillers set in new york where the the female uh, soon to be victim was in one of the tube carriages and the guy came in and they had to kind of get around all the seats and there were all the bars and it was very threatening lighting and uh, unpleasant seat covers yeah i'm, I'm pretty i don't s- think that was the, the biggest of her concerns I, i've got to <laughs> say uh
4: yeah I'm, I'm pretty certain if you if you kind of go and go and dig out warriors on dvd there's at least one section where where they're on the london overground rather than the new york subway but uh yeah it's i mean it's these days it's it's one of the kind of the most the, the works the most successful line uh, the kind of national rail services in terms of performance at the moment.
3: And it's, it's much more pleasant generally, isn't it? It's one long train through, so there's, there's no individual carriages that are visible to the eye you can you can walk from one end of the train to the other
4: yeah i mean they've, they've been very smart with it what they've done is effectively said that that w- what people want on those lines is they want something that's that's like the tube they want a tube like experience and and so the, the trains have kind of uh, longitudinal seating now so they have seats down the sides not through the middle they're they're wide and open and more importantly they're they're every 15 minutes and that's kind of the the cut-off point where people stop looking at timetables and start just turning up at stations and that changes the way people behave and that's that's why passenger numbers have have gone through the roof and that's why that's why places like shadwell like like kind of dalston and all those kind of places are starting to pick up again because people can now go there on a night out and know they can they can just wander down to the
0: station and get back again is is that um that's that's really important i think the 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 there's it's not the timetable but the fact that you don't need to worry about a timetable that, that, the fact that there's, there's, enough, uh, there's enough trains per hour that takes away any kind of anxiety to say, all right, we've really got to get going in order to make that collection to get get the next connection. You see, this is quite a horrific experience, isn't it, when you go out of London and you go to the
3: bus stop and you realise it's a half an hour wait for the next bus. You know, this... This can't be right. And
4: there are people listening in the countryside at the moment who are laughing at that. It's more than one bus on the same day. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, f- 15 minutes is that, it's that magic number. I mean, it sounds really silly, but, but if you have a service every 16 minutes, people don't. People look at timetables. If you have a service every 14 minutes or 15 minutes, they don't. It really is a genuine kind of mental cut-off point. And, I mean, the other big thing for the Overground was that, and things like completing this Clapham Junction section, is it, is it brings train services back to areas that previously were very reliant on buses. Now, the, the irony is those buses were every three minutes. The buses were more reliable. But actually, there's something very physical about having a train line there. And the moment you put down tracks, people, people see it as more permanent. And that really does change areas. Where are the new uh, stations? What, what's been linked up here? Well, I mean, effectively what you've got is you've got a short s- stretch between Surrey Quays and, and Clapham Junction that's now kind of linked up. Now, so, a lot of those stations had services before. You know, you, you're talking Wandsworth Road, Clapham High Street, Peckham Rye, places like that. But but they did previously run into Victoria, and that is one of the, the kind of the downsides. Now they've lost some kind of connecting services to Victoria. Oh, this is pretty serious for commuters then, is it? Um... It wasn't a particularly well-used line. Um, there's been a lot of protest, and, and it's rightful protest because you, you don't want to lose a, a train service to a station when you're used to getting it for for however long. Um, but I mean, going forward, those trains will run into London Bridge after London Bridge has been redeveloped, so it, it will change people's commutes. Um, but, I mean, the Clapham Junction connection means that, that you've still got good connections, but they're just not the connections sometimes that some people who previously used the service would have been used to. Which, which could be a good thing to see above.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, oh, it's time, it's time for another cracker moment, please, Mark Duncan. All right. Now, this is completely random, by the way, but I don't think it makes any difference. I mean, uh, what are two rows of cabbages called? A dual cabbage way. Oh, God.
3: There's plenty more where that came from, folks. Do you want,
1: to, you want to do another one, don't you? I can see that look in your eye. What did the policeman say to his stomach? You're under a vest.
3: <laughs> where are we going next? We should we should um, dig into some of the stories here. What have we got? Oh, bombs. There's a bomb map. Alan, what are we looking at here? I can see a strand there, and there's pictures of bombs all over it. What are we looking at?
2: Well, I think I was given this story because to show my age having lived through the blitz <clears throat> um i've been given this uh, this story on somebody which is very interesting um has drawn a map showing the site of every um bomb that dropped between september 1940 and june 1941
3: so so essentially you've been you know alan you went through hell here's a reminder that, that's what this story does
2: I went through a very comfortable war. It hardly affected me at all. Um, The only bomb I uh, really saw was one that fell near the back garden and uh, the windows went. But apart from that, um, I had a very happy and relaxed school days. Whereabouts were you at that time? Uh, In Southgate in North London.
3: Oh, right. So still in the thick of it? Because Southgate got bombed, certainly.
2: Oh, Southgate did. But the bit on which, well, Winchmore Hill, where I was, was comparatively free
3: so what do you think then looking at uh, at this is this a useful addition to our knowledge
2: i think it's useful for historians i don't know if a lot of people would be that interested if they haven't lived through it uh, it is a specialized area in a way but it is interesting for people of my era to, uh, as a memorial as a memory of where these did fall and the effect it had on us and especially as it's this particular map is supplemented with eyewitness testimonies hmm. drawn from the BBC archives as well as photographs. So you can really almost live the experience.
3: I watched a fascinating oral history series of recordings, people who were, I think, in the Isle of Dogs, and they were talking about the experience of being bombed, and it's it's quite remarkable. And what, what one always finds with those things is how everyone takes it in their stride. You've got a bomb, fall near you. You, you seem uh, re- remarkably calm about that whole uh, idea, and, and that's, that's, uh, it's that resilience and that composure that's always strikes me.
0: Well, I was also thinking, um, in um, various parts of London, you're walking along a street and uh, and the street numbers just go sort of you know 46 44 42 then a space and then it goes 38 36 and um it, i i would usually assume if they're old houses that they probably did get bombed and those and that part of the street didn't get built built up but i think it it might be uh I think it might be interesting for people to know where the missing houses are and and why they're why the spaces are there. Is it that they just uh, fell fell down through dilapidation, or, or or did they actually get get bombed?
4: I mean, one of the interesting things looking at it. I mean, we covered uh, this a bit because it's it still has an effect today. Um, uh, Crossrail, of course, are building big kind of railway beneath London at the moment. And they actually have their own unexploded ordnance team because they still have to look for these things. Mm. Because, you know, in, in the same way as the, in the fields of Belgium, farmers still dig up kind of old shell cases from the First World War. If you build a big bu- building in London, when you dig the foundations, there is a chance you're going to dig something up. And the records are good, but they're not, they're not perfect. So there, there's something kind of very does not compute about, about being sat in a van with guys... Mm kind of surveying land in kind of the east end or or docklands where they're building railways with guys who up until kind of six months ago were british army and were surveying for mines or bombs in in iraq you know there was one that was found not so long ago wasn't there there was an olympic one um i forget which year i think it was about 2008 it was bromley by bow and they they unearthed a a thousand kilo german kind of bomb um which which no doubt had uh, stopped a few hearts i mean no one no one has died in london from from unexploded bombs since the war uh, it's not generally the unexploded bombs that kill people well there's, there's a, yeah <laughs> you've been reading the, the cracker jokes again um there, well i mean you say that there's a there's a rather kind of sad irony which which is that the germans were very good at building bombs which meant their bombs tended to go off um, sadly, the same isn't actually true for the British and Americans. The, the, uh, German cities like Dresden and Hamburg got really heavily bombed as well and have the same problem. But because we didn't build our bombs as well, there's a lot more unexploded ordnance under, under German cities and they have to worry about it more. And they, they, they've actually been people who kind of died post-war from our bombs, whereas no one's died from, from their bombs here. I mean, German engineering kind of ironically at its best has done us better than, than other cities. I want to gauge your interests.
3: You specialise, of course, through London Reconstruction connections in trains. You seem to know a lot about explosives.
4: Um, well, I mean, my original training was a military historian, um, I kind of, which I think basically qualifies you to either write books or write for the Daily Mail. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm, and neither really appealed to me, so kind of transport journalism was, was, was the alternative, because at least then you get to talk about steam trains. But yes, so, so yeah, military history uh, pops up uh, in, in that regard as well.
3: The uh, clock tells me it's that
1: time again. What does a vampire have for breakfast? Ready neck. <laughs> oh. What fish sleep a lot? Kippers. (laughs) Well, I think that
3: was a new low. There's a big picture of a black taxi's light over there in front of you, Tom Miles. What, what is the story related to that?
0: The story here is that uh, Transport for London have uh, approved a plan for advertising funding Wi-Fi in black cabs. So uh, the passenger of a, of a cabby sits in the back and uh, they can access the internet uh, on Wi-Fi and... Um, but the the downside is every fifteen minutes there's going to be a fifteen second advert. I wonder if it's really. I, I mean, if, if if I'm in a cab, then I would have thought that I can I can just sort of. Um, I, I don't really need Wi-Fi at, at that time. I would have thought that the the, the mo- usual mobile phone. Uh, anyway, if you if you're downloading a, a a kind of article in the newspaper or something, then 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 you can just be be reading that for the duration of the cab cab journey.
3: Yes, yeah, so I suppose it presupposes that you're going to be using high volumes of data in the cab. It doesn't ring true in my ears. That's what Starbucks is
0: for. No, I mean, I think, I think the... the... <laughs> The, te- the, the 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 reading reading text as you would read a, a newspaper i would have thought that the perfect time for that would be while you're sitting sitting in a cab
4: I and mean, well i mean i suppose presumably at least it means you can stream a bbc station rather than having to listen to talk sport. but i mean that, that's the only real advantage i can see to it there is actually a connection here between that and our
3: question of the week which went out on facebook we called upon all armchair inventors we asked what gadgets widgets or apps london might be in need of that don't already exist and uh, we had a few responses here any of these take your interest
2: alan i don't have a smartphone i've got a mobile phone that does great things like sending like telephone calls and sending texts um so i I can't it doesn't really apply to me
0: one i like here is from colin hode uh, which is uh, anti-gravity boots for crossing the thames
3: this is, that's a very holish contribution I've got to say thank you Colin Gareth
4: yeah I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that, that Mark Watson here has kind of uh, suggested some kind of smartphone uh, app to, to electrocute people who stand on the wrong side of escalators um, which, which I think whilst not wanting to condone violence I think I hardly approve of um, oh, I'm, a, I'm a bit
3: disturbed by this we've got Mark Watson at the top wanting to electrocute them and then we, we go to Chris Yate now uh, Chris we need to talk I, I suspect uh, can we have Chris's suggestions please Tom
0: uh, Chris's one is the pavements that tip sideways when necessary to throw slow walkers into the road, uh, and then another one which is a stinger barrier at red lights, weight activated pits under advanced cycle stop lines to dispose of errant taxis. Oh we're back to taxis again. Oh. <laughs> it seems to be about um, a, a, this a sense of fair play. Uh, i think everybody feels that that there's a that there's a certain way to behave and that people people should should obey these these little rules and uh we can rather than than actually policing them you could have an app that 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 sort of keeps people on the straight and narrow but it seems does seem a little bit um it does seem to go into a lot of detail about things things that can can kind of irritate people
4: i think what's interesting with with kind of those ones with the escalators with kind of tipping pavements and all of that is that they're actually not very london specific i'm reasonably certain if you went to new york and posted this exact same question you'd get exactly the same answers so whilst they are kind of local customs actually think they're kind of city customs more than anything else
3: they're not local customs to tip people into the street that's not a custom <laughs> don't make it into a thing oh, only because we haven't started doing it yet
0: no. <laughs> oh well i'm gonna get uh, to, as, as a londoner i'm gonna sort of talk about one bugbear uh, which gets me which is people who put their who put their cup of coffee on the seat next t- to them uh, and then accidentally sort of tip it over and don't and and just walk away. So so then you've got a seat which is just sort of impregnate, impregnated with with cof, cold coffee. And I I feel that that you know as well as the sort of signs about keeping your feet off the seat, keeping keeping liquid coffee off the seat would be be a, a start as well.
2: I suppose my bugbear is um, mainly uh, shopping in supermarkets. I reckon there should be a a pit that opens up under under people, if they take too long at the cashiers, getting their money out, going back to get something else they've forgotten, um, taking their time generally, um, wasting everybody else's time and then just looking absolutely blank and toddling off and then coming back because they've forgotten their receipt or something like that.
1: Well, the answer is obviously a three-day working week.
3: Sorry, where did that come from?
1: Because we're all too hassled and all too running around the city and expecting everyone else to be as hassled as we are. So So low low productivity is the answer to all of it. Or Christmas cracker jokes, and I have some more topical Christmas cracker (laughs) jokes um, to do with transport. Would you like to hear them? So, what kind of a car does a lady in a pantomime drive? Can we actually see if we can guess this one? They've all
0: seemed pretty guessable. Lady Lee, what kind of car? Lady in a pantomime, um... Daimler,
4: Daimler. Daimler.
1: Well done, Alan. Alan. Okay. um, what was the first motorised vegetable? First motorised vegetable. Cabbage. Indeed, the horseless cabbage. (laughs) Um, Where can you buy British Rail bubblegum? Come on. No, no
0: idea. No, no, no
1: on a choo choo train uh, and last one before you before you die where in a jungle is it not safe to park on a double yellow lion <laughs>
2: <laughs> i'm going to write that one down there <laughs> this is far too intellectual for me i'm sorry Whew.
3: Well, returning to uh, the, the point that I, we, we sprang into apps uh, and inventions and seemed to get sidetracked into uh, murder, essentially, and, and griping about that. Like, it never fails to amaze me how easily London's can be made to gripe, but... There was a suggestion here which I thought was quite an interesting one. Florian Kruger says, I agree with free Wi-Fi. It would be super easy to create a network of networks that is self-extending and self-managing and provides the basic right of education in a digital way to every person in London. It would make us stand out as a city big time and therefore would be one of the best marketing campaigns ever and a few other people have said uh, free wi-fi but uh, none, none so elegantly as florian there what, what do you think of that uh, i'm particularly interested in the idea that, that
1: internet is a basic right of education well i think especially at the moment because certain governments are trying to place more controls on the internet so this kind of idea gains even more importance in the face of that that's something that makes it more egalitarian and more just generally useful for everyone
0: I think it's very important, especially in in uh, museums and heritage um, because because these uh these objects tell us something and they do uh, belong to everyone i mean they 're for everybody to enjoy uh, but they're also very delicate, they can be very fragile uh, they can be very difficult to actually look at quickly so having digitization projects means that people can actually look at look at things uh quickly and if you think about the physical process if you wanted to sort of um say look at look at uh, various different um various different uh, well london transport museums you know various various different uh, types of tubes and trams you know how difficult that would be to see physically whereas on the online it's 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 really easy
3: in a way this is an extension of that very noble and positive London feature, which is the free museum. So by extending free Wi-Fi to everybody, it would
4: be free virtual access. I think there is one, one danger, or well not really a danger, but something that's worth being aware of with this, which is that I think the more information people have is great, but what it also puts onto the schools, onto, onto education systems, is, is the need to teach people how to read sources. Um, because suddenly when you 're flooded with information, you, you don 't necessarily know what the intentions are of of the person who 's writing that, and, and being able to filter all that information down into something useful becomes a far, far more important skill than perhaps it was it was kind of ten years ago when, when, when we were far more kind of guided in our reading and our and, and our material
0: objects in museums, libraries archives they 're they're, they're still not available enough. there's there's a long way to go and uh I think it it still hasn't been incorporated educationally uh, enough yet I mean it's 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 getting there
3: that's very interesting we were talking to uh, Paolo Viscardi at the Horderman on last week's show and he was saying that the exhibits on display are in fact a tiny tiny proportion of what's in storage and for reasons of space quite understandably and for m- maintenance they can't display it all so you, you you say you've been working on digitization projects for a number of heritage institutions is part of that exploring the the kind of the hidden uh artifacts of an institution or uh, how does it work
0: well as well as um, one one museum it's actually uh, different different museums and how they're they're connected up um for example, a hundred years ago, uh, the uh, anthropologists and musicologists went off to far-flung places with their their edaphones and recorded a whole lot of uh, music on wax cylinders. Um, deposited all those wax cylinders in one one uh, in the the uh, sound archive. Uh, deposited all the artifacts in, say, the Pitt Rivers Museum or the the Horniman Museum and And uh, wrote books and deposited photographs elsewhere, so a uh, hundred years later, all those objects are, are are starting to kind of make connections back with each other, so you can see how they're how how they're connected up.
3: We should come back to the the objects themselves, actually. There was one beautiful piece. Uh, amongst the other they're they're all all very beautiful, uh, but but this one really took the uh, took the prize in my mind, and it's the one in the seashell box, a very ornate piece. you've got a giant seashell that you're just bringing up onto the table here, Alan.
2: yeah, in fact it's uh, made in it was made in Italy, it was made by Monte Grappa, and it's called the Aphrodite. Um, the shell case is obviously the reference to Aphrodite, Venus as she was born out of a seashell. Uh, the pen itself is is made has got a black material, but there's mother of pearl and um, silver chasings, uh, which include four figures showing Aphrodite, at the birth of Aphrodite, and uh, it has a pearl at the at the bottom coming out of the shell as well. And um, what's the provenance of this
3: item? How did it come to be in your hands?
2: No, it was simply that I was collecting fountain pens for the collection and I had all the old ones, not all the old ones but a good selection of early ones and I thought I wanted something a bit more impressive uh, for the collection and this was the the noblest and the the most sort of uh, outrageous one that was on the market at the time. Have you actually tried writing with all of these pens? With this one, no with the early ones I have just to for research and for write thing articles and things I've written for books but no the modern one no this one I haven't I uh, thought I'd keep it pristine almost as an investment originally
3: yes it's like those toys that you, you mustn't take out of their that's box the or sort of, sort of, yeah that's the sort of thing yeah paleography which is is what you lecture in um, yes. here I think yes what could you tell us that we most certainly would not suspect about the history of writing
2: I suppose really that um, it goes back far f- further than people think most people think it started possibly with the Romans or the Greeks and before then or and the Egyptians um, and they invented it but uh, no it does go way back.
3: and you were mentioning that there are some forms of writing that remain whether well, this was my this was what I was surprised about I, I thought yeah. there was like one type of handwriting that people hadn't yet worked out how to decipher, but in fact there's quite a few. Uh, scripts out there that are uh, inexplicable at the moment
2: oh there are many scripts in fact um there's one that has just been deciphered called proto-elamite um but the ones that haven't been deciphered are things like the indus valley script from from northern in- or from northern india from the indus valley obviously um and there's a manuscript for called the Voynich manuscript which uh, a friend of mine is been researching and trying to decipher for many years it's one of these things and the feistos disc from crete um, none of these have been deciphered and people have been trying for donkey's years but without success so there's a long way to go
4: i mean presumably it must be kind of like cryptography it must be like code breaking with these things where i mean i'm guessing you, you need like a really large sample of the writing to be able to start making guesses
2: at things do you
3: I'm quite certain I heard that Bletchley Park got involved, or, or staff from Bletchley Park got involved in one of these uh, attempts to crack a, a handwriting.
2: Yeah, I think they have done, but um, that's the thing about Indus Valley. Their writing only appears on seals, and there's only four or five letters or characters on each seal. So uh, you need, as you were saying, you do need a whole lot to. Gets the basic idea, and code code ecology is the great basis of decipherment. Okay, Westminster
3: Council is
2: always good for a controversial
3: story, <laughs> particularly where homelessness is concerned. It's either parking violations or homelessness, and we've got another story this week from uh, Westminster Council. What, what are their
1: priorities this week, Mark Duncan? Well, um, I'm going to talk a little about homeless families. Um, Westminster Council does top the list with homeless families in temporary accommodation, short-term accommodation, Um, but many other boroughs also have a very high percentage. It's usually a six-week limit for uh, homeless families to be in B&B accommodation, but often it's turning out to be much longer. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of people would like to nip off to a nice B&B in the countryside, but it's not like that at all. It's the opposite, because a lot of these B&Bs have falling conditions it seems Um, damp or security issues, vermin fire hazards, cramped conditions etc so not a nice place to spend your family Christmas and according to statistics um, there's presently 57,000 children who will be homeless this Christmas Um, so it's a big issue in London Uh, the capital's rents um, have risen by a third in three years they were pretty high already three years ago now they're very high um plus as many people will know housing benefit caps combined with these rising rents have have led to to a lot of low income and families being made homeless and unable to afford accommodation and some London boroughs are even suggesting or moving families not just to another borough but to another city.
3: Yes, uh,
1: far up north as well, away from, uh, from friends and family. Indeed, I couldn't actually believe that when I heard that um, a few months ago. Um, but yes, it's a fact. Um, so it's- s- yeah, with councils uh, uh, selling off a lot of social housing Um, And maybe it's just ironic, of course, because Westminster is where the House of Parliament is, Um, houses of Parliament. But um, as I said before, Westminster tops the list um, with homeless families this Christmas. 134
3: families, I think, that are over the period allotted. So Westminster's got that situation going on there. And uh, what is Westminster Council doing?
0: Well, they're having a crackdown on rare and medium rare burgers.
3: Um, Very, very important.
0: (laughs) um, Westminster City Council is taking action over the freedom to choose how your burger is done, with other local authorities expected to follow suit. Uh, and there 's a number of sort of celebrity chefs uh, who are being uh, asked how they offer their burgers and uh, the danger is if they 're served if uh, burgers are served rare um, then uh, they're, they're, they're well i mean there 's a, a professor Hugh Pennington who 's a top expert on e coli Uh, has uh, outlined apparently that uh, rare minced meat that is not correctly cooked and prepared can kill so um, i i actually didn't i don't think i've ever been asked how whether i want my burger to be rare or medium rare i've never been given the choice i just sort of get this burger and then you cut into it and then you find out uh, f- find out what the deal is really
3: certainly at wendy's nobody's ever consulted me <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no i mean, know back, back, i mean sort of way back it used to be basic you, you'd have to sort of fit fit round how the how the chain was able to to manage their demand and supply and if if they were rushed then uh, you'd get a very sort of gooey gungy bit in the middle of the burger Uh, and if if they if they had plenty of time then um or or they didn't have very much custom then you get a sort of a gnarled and dried out uh, burger that had been sitting on the on the counter for a couple of hours i should
3: imagine that still goes on i can't quite work out why they're targeting these upper end chefs that seems a strange place to start unless the food inspectors are there uh, chewing on a you know sitting in a celebrity chef's restaurant m- munching and savoring the flavor. Well, Yes, this is definitely undercooked
1: let me just take another mouthful to be sure this oh no that's definitely undercooked reminds me of the olympics when a local burger traders were banned from selling because of course our main sponsor was mcdonald's we've got a fantastic sponsor we've got
3: audible.co.uk Audible is offering you a free digital audiobook as you'll be well aware and if you if you've heard this message before from me and you haven't signed up for your free digital audiobook What's going on in your head? You know, you like speech. You like listening to stuff. This is what they uh, purvey, and you can get a free digital audio book from their catalog of 60,000 audio books if you take up a special 30-day free trial of the Audible service, and uh, if you cancel, you still keep the free book, and you can burn it to your uh, CD. You can can put it on your MP3 player or your iPhone or or whatever, and it's yours to keep whatever happens uh, about that Uh, subscription. Subscription's pretty cheap as well. I sign up to that and uh, enjoy a free audio book every month. Uh, to get your free audio book go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through well we're in the uh, the closing we're in the home straight of the show now I've got some questions to ask you in our historical quiz that you may or may not have been anticipating you were anticipating not <laughs> general knowledge it's historical <laughs> right well I'm I don't think I'm going to win. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's one question before that that I want to ask, which is to you, Alan. What's your wife got against Paraguay?
2: Um, it's too far away. The uh, the flight's too long. And, uh, well, that's it, basically.
3: I'm, I'm a bit confused, you see, because before we started recording, you mentioned that you've been to every country bar three. And, and when you talked about Paraguay, I rather got the impression that you, you've uh, flown over it,
2: flown past it, but your wife's not happy about going to Paraguay. What's, what's going on? <laughs> I think it's one of those countries where you don't really hear a lot about and there isn't a lot to, to know about it in a way. It seems uh, a country that's always been there, but uh, you don't really hear about it a lot. And I think it's mainly the flights to go there and wonder what to do once we get there.
3: Well, suggestions, please. What should, what should Alan do in Paraguay? That, that sounds like a TV show. <laughs>
1: You're very well travelled, Mark, aren't you? Yeah, I've been living in Brazil quite a lot the last couple of years in Sao Paulo. What's taken you there? Love. Amor. Um, It's because your partner's Brazilian, I remember now. That's correct, yes. Yeah, I mean, Sao Paulo is the third biggest city in the world, 25 million. High rises everywhere. But they don't necessarily have the reputation of high rises here, which is often associated with poverty, not always lifts that don't work, etc. Um, they're often very much sought after and a good solution to a high population. And they have gardens, lots of trees, lots of artistic murals and things like that. And of course, security is quite paramount there as well. Um
3: well, you're in a good position as well, I suspect, to to to, to evaluate it. You've been to uh, throughout the UK, New Zealand, Indonesia, Mexico, Korea, China, and Brazil to name but a few. With your with your various uh, interests, Dragonfly Mime Theatre, X Moves the Base Dance Company, and Faceless Co- Faceless Co. as well as Cornucopia. You're a busy man these days.
1: Yeah, well, I'd like to be doing more travelling, but the focus with Cornucopia, as I mentioned earlier, has been on London projects, um, working specifically with Tower Hamlets Council so it's it's more that idea of working locally but thinking globally
3: okay well we'll, we'll get to details on, on all of those and on uh, London reconnections and on digitized artifacts and so forth the Museum of Writing of course but first the all-important historical quiz uh, how many historians do we have amongst us who, who is actually a, an historian here it's Gareth Edwards.
4: Right, there's quite a lot of history. uh, You know, you say to someone, "Oh, I'm I'm a historian," and they go, "Oh, do you know about this thing that happened in 372 BC?" And you go, "No, there's quite a lot of it."
3: I heard about somebody who went to America, a Londoner who went to America, and uh, she, she told an American in a bar or something, I've come from England, and he said, oh, you must know my Aunt Anne, she lives in Birmingham. <laughs> 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 there goes our American listenership. Sorry, guys. Okay, so five questions. It's uh, the past week in London's history. Monday, the 3rd of December, 19... 19- 52. We're looking for the identity of this person who was born in Chiswick. He would become a successful comic performer and writer, known for his involvement in late 70s and 80s shows. In particular, not the nine o'clock news. Rowan Atkinson, not Rowan Atkinson, and alas, Smith and Jones. Mel
1: Smith, Mel Smith Smith Smith, 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 Smith.
3: Yeah, it, well, that's a definite Mark Duncan, uh, a Mark Duncan point there. Tuesday, the fourth of December, eighteen eighty-two. Which legal institution is opened by Queen Victoria? To an museum. Legal institution. Oh, legal. I mean, that is legally an institution. Is legally but an institution. Yeah. One
0: what? of the one of the crown courts. Uh,
3: Royal, Royal Courts of Justice. Oh, it's yeah. the Royal Courts of Justice. Now, who got, Were you slightly ahead there, Gas? Well, I'm, I'm,
4: claim
3: I'm claiming victory on that. I th- well, th- see, this is recorded, so I don't.
4: <laughs> no, no, no.
3: One, one point each. Yeah, it's fair, isn't no, it? Fair. Well, it's only fair if you were first. What? We are talking about the Royal Courts of Justice, after <laughs> <Yeah>. all. <laughs> how should i split this up i don't know
0: i thought i thought gareth came in first i th- well, I set up the goal you know i sort of set up the yeah.
2: goal and then one, of, one of them were able to Points head it for in everyone. Yeah. i think you'd do the judgment of solomon and give it to me because i didn't say anything
3: <laughs> do you know i was about to until you said that <laughs> one point to gareth time will tell whether i made the right decision or not uh wednesday the 5th of december 1905 part of the roof of which london station collapses killing six people no, it's a train no, no, question okay. St Pancras no uh, the Euston no Kings Cross. Kings Cross
0: no Fenchurch
3: not Fenchurch okay. Waterloo. 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 Waterloo
4: no
0: Marylebone we're
4: running, we're running out of terminals no. Liverpool Victoria Street. Liverpool Street Victoria <laughs> London Bridge
1: Clopham <laughs> <London> Bridge <laughs> <laughs> crikey
4: really yeah. no I really should know that but I don't Blackfriars uh, Blackfriars
3: Blackfriars Black there's, there's still one you haven't got. Cannon Street. It's not Cannon Street.
4: Or Charing Cross.
3: It's Charing Cross. Yes. Well, I'm I'm relieved that you got that in the end. Uh, Thursday, the 6th of December, 1983, Britain's first instance of a particular kind of surgery takes place at Harefield Hospital in Uxbridge, West London. The operation goes well, but sadly, the patient would die 13 days later. What sort of operation was it that was carried out? Brain. Brain. Heart transplant. It was it was a heart transplant, but it was a bit more than just that. It was a heart uh, and lung. It was a heart and lung transplant. I'm going to go one point each for that.
2: Gareth sitting pretty on
0: three. Uh, to be fair,
4: I think I think I think Adam was, uh, was kicking in with
2: heart. To be no, with no, though. no, sir. Uh, oh, I said heart, but I wouldn't have got the the lung bit. No. Oh right. So a point. He, he Points all round.
4: heart point, I think. Uh, Alan gets my heart points. I think
3: if this, I this right. is very generous. Yeah, very generous. Uh, Gen- apart from Mark, who's been clambering after every point. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so what the oh, Where's the? This is too modern for me. Uh, yeah.
2: uh, you,
3: you've got one, haven't you? I have definitely got one. What have you got one for? Uh, for first question. Yeah. Right.
4: right, right. You've got uh, a Jaren disputed one. T- well, I've got Charing Cross you- and the Royal Courts.
3: Yes, or did you get the real court? Well, well, did I? Didn't I? This is this is, this <laughs> yeah. is only only the replay will show. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's let's do this. Okay. So uh, we, this may or may not be the score at this stage. We may have one for Alan, three for Gareth.
4: Two.
3: It's gone down to two for Gareth, seven for Tom, and Mark doing very nicely on fourteen. Friday, the seventh of December, seventeen thirty-two. The Theatre Royal Covent Garden is opened. It would later become known as what? Coliseum. Nope.
0: Royal Opera House. It's
3: the Royal Opera House, yes, another one for Tom there, fantastic. Which which may mean, depending on on what the hell the score is, that you two have got two each, which puts you in joint lead, which means I think that we need a tiebreaker. What better tiebreaker could we have than trying to guess the answer to Mark Duncan's Christmas cracker joke?
1: (laughs) Why did the hedgehog cross the road?
0: I I don't know, he needed... uh, uh, he needed to 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 spike the next story
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: can i edit that out slightly
1: out? Peculiar. <laughs> 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 it
3: Didn't work but it's it's more than gareth contributing no, yeah, I, I, I don't I, I think it we're going to have an
1: idea on that one. okay, okay. The... drum roll <laughs> to see his flatmate oh, yeah. oh
3: cool well, we, we need another one okay.
1: okay which country has the largest appetite Hungary
3: Well, that was gareth edwards by a mile yes it was indeed hungry and we end on a a minor key (laughs) Uh, gareth before we go i think you've got a cracker joke for us as well
4: yeah well it's it's in the right tone i mean it's sadly a joke i suspect only people who who listen to to kind of music in the 90s will get but which is uh, a why couldn't the lion find the tiger because jungle is massive
3: On which note, we leave you for this week. Um, Thank you for hosting us here at the Museum of Writing, Tom Miles and Alan Cole. And thank you for, uh, as well, giving us a a tour of fountain pens through the ages and uh, and nibs and quills and so forth. Um, And thank you as well, Mark Duncan and Gareth Edwards stroke John Bull, for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and your endeavours?
0: Tom Miles. Twitter is uh, at Museum of Writing. And, and our blog, which is uh, Museum of Writing as well. Mark Duncan,
1: www.cornucopiatheatre.com. Gareth Edwards. And um, we're at
4: londonreconnections.com for uh, uh, news and history about the underground. We've just put our Christmas quiz up, which should be pretty challenging, I think. Do you, do you tweet as well? Uh, yes, um, I'm at Garius, which is G A R I U S.
2: And uh, Alan Cole? Um, On the same blog as Tom Miles, to be honest, um, at the Institute of English Studies.
3: And what have you been blogging recently?
2: It mainly is odd odd letters and and quirky things, trying for people to guess what they are.
3: Fantastic. All right. OK, so we're we're quiz heavy then. Yeah. Good. OK, well, uh, thanks very much, all of you, for being here today. Thank Thank Thank
2: you. Thank you.
1: She
3: That's all for this week My thanks for this week To my guests Mark Duncan Gareth Edwards Alan Cole And Tom Miles Thanks too To Bernie Barkley Zoe Craig Rhea Heath And Dave Haste Theme and incidental music Was by Jack Hurd And Rory Anderson And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe
2: Waiting for the-